0: It's been a busy and controversial couple of weeks for the Missouri House of Representatives, and House Majority Leader Mike Serpoi has some insight on what's going on. The Lee Summit Republican joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six, five, five four, three, two, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair to say. As I say, say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> uh, you no, know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum. I'm live in Jefferson City this week. My co-host, Joe Manis, is on assignment. Joining me, my special guest today, our third House Majority Leader we've had on our show.
1: Mike Sirpointe.
0: You are a Republican from Jackson County. Are you? What city are you from, particularly? I
1: cover most of North Lee Summit, a little bit of Independence, and
0: a little bit of Blue Springs. Okay, so you're a part of the Jackson County Republican Mafia, so to speak. That is true. Uh, I don't. I didn't mean that disparagingly. In the best way. In the best <laughs> way. So we're going to talk about a lot of issues that have percolated over the last week and a couple of weeks. But before we do that. Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into politics and got into legislative service. And I have to channel my co-host right here where you went to high school. Oh,
1: I went to De La Salle, actually, high school in Kansas City mm-hmm. a long time ago. It closed in 71. So um, I'm, uh, I'm one of the older members of the body. Wow. And I grew up in northeast Kansas City, which is uh, the old part of Kansas City. It was a great place to grow up. My wife and I, my wife also grew up in the northeast. We grew up about four blocks apart. We met when we were 14. Um, it, it's uh, a changed area now, but it was a wonderful area to grow up when I did it. We moved out of uh, uh, Kansas City to Eastern Jackson County uh, after we got married about 1975 and um, had two kids, raised them in Independence, then moved to Lee Summit in 2003. And um, my wife actually was in the General Assembly from '95 to 2003 uh, from a district in Independence. And through that... I've always liked politics. I kind of converted from a Democrat to Republican during the Ronald Reagan time. Actually, Jimmy Carter did most of the damage. Uh, I voted for Jimmy Carter in 76, but by the time 1980 rolled around, I'd learned my lesson. And um, I took a real interest in politics and started paying attention, but I really never thought about running. My wife was an activist, um, kind of a conservative pro-life activist and involved with several issues. And when, when she was approached about running in 92, uh, we got to know a lot of the politicians in the area, and uh, I realized that they they weren't special; they were just regular folks who took an interest and decided to get involved. Connie uh, lost in ninety two, but she won in ninety four. Uh, then she served for eight years, and um, I, again, I seeing people in action, seeing how it worked, I realized I just thought started thinking about it. She then, once she left the legislature, uh, we we stayed in Independence for eight more years, but then we moved to Lee Summit. And Connie was in a very tough district. She had a very tough Democrat every year. And uh, once we moved to Lee Summit, the districts are much more
0: Republican. Oh yeah, now. absolutely. For our listeners who are St. Louis centric, mm-hmm. independence is, besides Kansas City proper, mm-hmm. is one of the more democratic parts of right. Jackson County. whereas Lee Summit and Blue Springs are Republican strongholds, right. which means, in some parts of independence the primary is the election but also in some parts of independence they're pretty competitive general mm-hmm. elections to this day um you know your your wife served at a time when the republicans were in the minority but they were kind of inching upwards they were i think that there was a point in time where the current speaker's father almost became speaker because of, there was like a revolt or something i'm not sure if your wife was a part of that, that was at our, all.
1: that was my first day down here it was county's first day as an elected uh, rep because it was in january of 95 um she didn't know about it, as you can imagine, it was pretty secret, but Mark and the uh, and, and Republican team had, had talked to seven Repo- uh, Democrats that were tired of Bob Griffin's rule and his methods, and they had agreed to uh, vote for him for speaker. But, um, so the first vote was for the temporary speaker, and that's where they showed their cards, and that's when the board, now we have rules the board can't stay open for more than a half hour, the board was left open all night. And uh, they were able to swing a couple of those Democrats back uh, back to the team. And the next morning the, it fell apart and Bob was elected speaker again. But Mark almost was speaker.
0: Yeah. So given bef- before we get to 2010 mm-hmm. when you first ran, I-, I don't know what the environment was like back then as far as just, you know uh, how stressful it was to be a legislature or how bloodthirsty the, the politics was of the Missouri House. But before you ran, did you look at your wife's experience and give you some pause, like, this is going to be kind of a tough thing to do? Or did, was it a, generally a good experience, and it kind of inspired you to run eight years later?
1: She had she had difficult days, but but she uh, when the Democrats ran the place, uh, a lot of the ideas Republicans wanted never got to the floor, so she never could vote on them. Uh, so a lot of the no votes that she cast were easy no votes from a Republican point of view, whether it's on— pro-abortion stuff or many of the things that democrats raising taxes and doing things that just in a general term from a republican point of view they're easy no votes now that we uh, have control of the body we can cause a tougher votes from our position sometimes because a lot of the things that democrats would like to do never get to the floor anymore and so and i do know that when connie was here uh, that was before term limits kicked in in fact when she left was when term limits started and so she served with bob griffin and several people that had been here 10, 15, 20, 30 years in some places. And so they knew the rules very well. They knew all the history of things. And they were also pretty partisan. And she got one amendment passed in eight years. And she just happened to be down here this week when when Jake Hummel, a Democrat, passed a bill. And I know I'm going to hear about it this weekend because oh, yeah. uh, she, uh, <laughs> she will remind me of how difficult it was and how she well, was treated. Well, it was even was
0: here. not to not to wax nostalgic too much, but it was almost like that, like in 2006 and 2008 and to some extent 2010, when the margins were a lot closer, right. the Republican majority was a lot less lenient on letting Democrats pretty much do anything, because and oftentimes if it was a controversial bill, like bills could fail outright. Absolutely. Now we're at a point now where there are so many Republicans that I don't really. My my sense, and maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong. It, it doesn't really seem like it's worth the trouble to try to be super partisan against the Democrats if they have an idea that has a lot of support, essentially, mm-hmm. because you already have 115 people. Essentially, you know,
1: I, I as floor leader, we can run over the Democrats. I don't want to. I want to uh, uh, make it a better environment. There is ways – I've told the Democrats, the de- leadership, that if they have amendments that are helpful, they're trying to help, it's, you know, we'll be happy to consider them. If they're just trying to blow up the bill or get us on, on, on trick votes, it'll be a different reaction. And our, our amendment team, we're trying to handle amendments without – we're not just saying ignore somebody. We're trying to say, okay, if they have an amendment we don't like, we're going to amend the amendment or do a substitute amendment and, uh, and deal with it that way. And so far, it's worked very well. I think, I think the Democrats feel like they've been treated fairly and I hope to
0: continue that. So you are the House Majority Leader. We've had other shows before where the House Majority Leader explains what they do, but if people haven't listened to mm-hmm. those, just kind of explain what your role is and kind of why you're an important aspect to getting the House moving,
1: Okay. Well, uh, bills are introduced, you know, different members file bills with the clerk, and then their first and second read. The, then the speaker will assign the bills to the committee process. They go through a standing committee, then a select committee. And that takes a while but then after they come out of select they go back to the speaker's office and at some point he will put them on what we call a calendar which is really just a list and that's called the perfection and printing calendar uh, and that's the first time they're on the floor once they're on that calendar or list I control it I can I determine when they come up how long we debate them uh, and when the vote takes place we I can also make the determination that we're not going to take a bill up that there's problems with it and a lot of times a bill as it works through the committee process our committee chairman and members do a really good job of trying to get the competing interests together and working out compromise but sometimes they don't sometimes they then come to my office and say, this bill's not ready for the floor, we have to do this, we have to do that, we have to amend it. And so sometimes that puts a slow uh, puts a, slow, a slowdown on the bill to to let that process work forward. So that's kind of what this office does.
0: One of the things that I notice this is from kind of an insidery baseball political view, is I think you're the first House Majority Leader in a while who will likely term out, assuming Speaker Richardson serves his whole right, term. right where you can't actually become speaker afterward because you're both going to be term limited at the same time. That's true. To give some context, um, former speaker, I mean, current speaker, Richardson, Richardson. was majority leader. Uh-huh. Former Speaker Deal was floor leader. Tim Jones was floor leader. Steve Tilley was floor leader. Right. The last non-floor leader elected was actually Ron Richard. Right. So does that change things? Are you just more workmanlike? You're not kind of thinking about the, the becoming the big dog, mm-hmm. so to speak, or does it not really change at all?
1: The, uh, the big dog does not interest me. I, I I've always preferred the back of the chamber to the front of the chamber. Um, I think that I had a lot of members as I ran last summer talk about that, say, what about the next class? Where is their speaker going to come from? And as I explained to them that Ron Richards came from Economic Development Chair. Uh, before him was Rod Jetton, who came from the pro tem's office. And the pro tem will be open this next t- cycle because Denny Hoskins is terming out. And so there's several paths to the speaker the speaker really is not about being the floor leader. It's more about relationships with members and getting their support. So I'm, I'm confident that whoever from that class is going to be their speaker will rise and, and be able to get there.
0: So let's talk about some of the things that have been in the news. And then we'll have to we'll get the elephant out of the, of the room out of the way first. Uh, while I was here in Jefferson City, another one of your Republican colleagues resigned, Don Gosen. Mm-hmm. He's a Republican from Baldwin. I actually talked to him yesterday. He didn't give me a lot of specifics. Speaker Richardson is not really giving a lot of specifics. I'm not expecting you to either. But I guess the question I have is this comes after Speaker Deal had to resign. This came after Senator Lavota on the Democratic side had to resign. And it comes as there's an ethics push going on. Mm-hmm. What effect do you think it's going to have on getting a lot of these bills passed, especially when a lot of senators are pointing out that, you know, curbing lobbyist gifts and um, closing the revolving door doesn't have exactly what to do with the reason these people reside
1: right well I'm, I'm, I'm not going to disappoint you as far as with Don I consider Don a friend but I really don't know much about it the speaker's statement pretty much stands on its own the um, the ethics what I've told people I, I every time I go to a chamber meeting or something I bring this up and people talk to people and a lot of people have a lot of different ideas on ethics what we need to do about the gift ban what we need to do about the revolving door how long it should be the gift ban whether it should be zero or it should be some other number and as I tell them you know, we talk about this a lot every year, in fact, many times. These bills get very large and usually go nowhere because they get so many opponents. By doing single-issue bills, it allows us to break them into smaller bites and not anyone to get that many people opposed to it. As far as making it stronger or perfect, we have to get something on the books first. It's always easier to tighten something up once you have something, but right now we have nothing. And so if we get a, uh, if we get a, a revolving door of a year and somebody thinks you should be two years, let's get the one year then we have something to tighten up next year. Mm -hmm. If we go for two years this year and it fails, we have nothing again. So it's frustrating in the legislative process, but compromise is important. And getting something on the books, because if you look at all the statutes, we're touching them all every so many years. Mm -hmm. And that's because they weren't done properly or strong enough the first time, and people find new ideas, and that's what we're doing now. We want to get something on the books.
0: So this this kind of goes to the current situation and is more general, and maybe you have a better insight on this because your wife was in the legislature Mm -hmm. now you are do you feel like this this town this this dome this capital is just has some corrosive influence on people's lives or is it people who already have questionable morals or maybe have weak judgments are just getting elected and they're just making bad decisions up here and and it kind of goes hand in hand like if it's one of those if 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 it's the environment then maybe legislation can fix it if it's people it's going to be a more difficult thing like what do you think about well, that well first
1: of all i think perception is reality and so i think a lot of people think that i also think a lot of people confuse washington dc with jeff city we're not as partisan as washington dc that was one of my biggest surprises coming to jeff city was i came down here after watching what's going on in dc and even knowing my wife and seeing her what she did I just came down here thought I'd fight with the Democrats much more. And we do fight on the floor. But off the floor, I, I, there, several of them I consider very good friends. And that kind of surprised me. But um, as far as the, the, the ethics reform itself, um, I don't think Jeff City, I don't think many of our members have a problem with it. Like I said, the perception is much worse than the actual issue. And um, that's what we're trying to address. If people think there's a problem, I guess there is a problem. And so we need to look at it. But I don't think buying somebody a dinner—we're going to—I to, think we're going to stop that. I know if you—if I go out and, and have a dinner with somebody, it doesn't change my vote. And but some people don't like that, and that's what we're trying to address.
0: Well, I've actually studied that issue for, for many years. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's a, and this is kind of a trade secret in the Missouri political world. But since the data for lobbyist gifts are so easy to get mm-hmm. and so easy to kind of sort in the spreadsheets, it's often something that we report on a lot. And I think we should because the information is there and it's Mm -hmm. sort of an accountability thing. But one of the things that I kind of gathered when I was doing a story about this a long time ago is that the, the the thing that lobbyists get when they buy a meal with somebody, even if it's like a $5 meal Mm -hmm. is the time. That's right. And it's, it provides them with kind of a window to talk about their issue away from the hurly burly of the Mm -hmm. floor. And I'm not passing judgment on that. That could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. But I mean, isn't that still going to happen regardless of whether you cap the amount of gifts? And won't the influence potentially be there depending on what they're saying?
1: Well, the the, the, the point I make about that is that that interaction is important. I'm, I'm a retired uh, telephone company employee. I worked for AT&T Southwestern Bell for 38 years. I know a lot about that technology. Uh, Medicaid, I don't know much about. And when you get elected, suddenly you're expected to make votes, intelligent votes. And... I can't talk to my friends and learn Medicaid. I have to talk to somebody who's in the business, and hopefully talk to somebody on both sides. I talk to the people, the physicians that are looking for payment out of Medicaid, I look for the providers, talk to the people, the patients that actually, you know, the consumer groups that actually use Medicaid services. And nobody can come down here. You know what you know from your life, from your own experience. We have doctors, we have lawyers, we have physicians, we have uh, pharmacists, a lot of different people from that area and and usually those are the areas that those folks work in but the vast majority of us don't have any exposure in those areas and we rely on people to bring us information to help us understand these things and much of that happens in the building itself they come to my office i have people coming through my district asking to meet me and i will meet them in a coffee shop i get one right off i-70 it's really easy to get to and if i have a cup of coffee or a piece of pie it's really not part of the influence it's just something you do with people
0: it's just basically something you do while you're talking to them and we have and and i just want to point out there are examples where it gets over the top where they're buying you like a 300 hundred dollar meal we have
1: had people that have abused that and it's the very fair very rare but we have had and so i understand that i think personally i think that disclosure thing is a wonderful thing because you can go on there and see people who have these exorbitant meals and and that is i think that should be stopped or at least made more light of but mm-hmm. the vast majority of us don't
0: so one of i wouldn't say he's your, your he's from the western side of the state i was going to say your geographical colleague but um senator david pierce who's from johnson county mm-hmm. which is a little far from jackson county but it's in the kansas city area he has a bill to cap campaign contributions and he was one of the people that voted to undo them in 2008 he expressed regret for that right um i'm kind of getting a sense though that the critical mass in both chambers is just not there to pass it through the legislature is that your is that a fair assessment
1: i would say that's that's a fair assessment i don't know that i think that's a good idea um the way i think personally i think the way you get money out of politics is to get us out of everybody's business because a lot of companies don't would love not to spend any money in jeff city on campaigns they feel like they're that the government is so broad and so involved with so many things they have to keep an eye on things And that's unfortunate I wish we weren't in so much of the economy that we are and that's true at the federal level and the state if you remember a few years ago uh, the 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 Justice Department went after Microsoft now Microsoft hires lots of lawyers because that was something that motivated them to get more involved and and that's my argument it is we should get out of more of some of these businesses and I think then those folks would probably not be down here but I think transparency is much more important in campaign finance than putting limits because people that are, are trying to influence us either because they want to be left alone or they want to influence policy uh, they're going to spend the money and and we're not I don't think we'll ever be able to tell somebody you can cannot spend money to either help me get elected or defeat me that just seems uh, anti-american that somebody can't spend it's like telling me I can't go next door and tell my neighbor that some guy's a bum you shouldn't vote for him
0: wow on would, a much bigger scale that would be rude but <laughs> you, you you can do that it's, a, it's a, it is a free country right. um, just just kind of to sum this aspect up yes, what realistically do you think the legislature will pass as far as ethics because i'm i just was in the senate now there's a lot of senators who don't want the revolving door ban right. some of them just think that the entire ethical push is kind of a waste of time but obviously a lot of people in the house thinks it think it's a big deal including the speaker what do you think this issue ends up at the end of the day
1: i think we'll pass a couple of them i think we'll pass a gift ban and the revolving door uh that i just came from a press avail that um the speaker said that that he's expecting the senate to move on these bills and that at some point he will attach ethics to other senate bills to get it done so i think he's very serious i think uh... senator Richards is very serious about
0: getting some of these done another no-nonsense individual so let's talk about some other issues that i think have been either passed recently or this week one of them is photo id it's been an issue i think i've been covering every single year that i've been a political reporter some years it's actually passed but the courts have struck it down Mm -hmm. Other years, they kind of fell victim to a democratic filibuster. I think it passed out of the House this year. Why, why? Why is it such an important thing for Republicans to pass? Uh,
1: it's, I think it's broader than Republicans. I think independents uh, support it very strongly. I think Democrats support it too, to a certain level. And I think it's—I think people just want to have confidence that their that their elections. You know, Democrats will say there's there's no, well, there's 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 a lot of voter fraud. They say there's no voter impersonation i just don't know what the problem is my mom recently passed but she was 87 years old she had a a photo id they're not hard to get and i think those arguments just don't make any sense in fact states that have passed it, democratic turnout has improved so i think it's important i think it's important to have people feel better about their elections this is what i don't understand too i live in lee summit every time i go to the vote they ask me for my driver's license so I, i show them my photo id so um it seems like a no brainer to me. I just wonder back in the 40s or 50s when they started saying you could bring utility statements, was there a fight over that? Saying that was disenfranchising people? I don't know.
0: Yeah, just to play devil's advocate uh-huh. and throw the opposite argument. Uh-huh. Oftentimes when this comes up, Democrats say it's going to make it harder for minorities mm-hmm. and elderly people to vote, mainly because elderly people may not have a driver's license and some lower income people of all races may not have cars and therefore they may not have driver's licenses. So I'm I'm sure you've heard that argument before. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, the bills we pass always have carve outs for for elderly. So if you're born before a certain date, you don't have to do it. There's ways to do affidavits for it. And the truth is uh, we usually provide provide funds upon appropriations for people that can't afford to get a photo id to get a state id it's not necessarily a driver's license you get a state id for it too and i don't know how much i i think that even the poor people don't have ids mm. it seems like the ones that i've talked to do and i think that problem is vastly overstated and like i said in states that have actually passed this because we're not alone out here uh, minority turnout has improved
0: the other thing that I think gets brought up is Democrats say there hasn't been examples of widespread voter impersonation fraud. They may say there's been registration fraud, but they say this is kind of a solution in Look for a problem. I don't know if that's the right saying, by the way, but but no, you've heard that too. I, I've heard
1: that, and and if there if that's true, it still doesn't. It, I think it makes people have more confidence in the process, and I think that makes it worthwhile by itself.
0: Yeah. It, it, if this does end up passing, it would go to the ballot because based off a Supreme Court decision, it would have to be passed into the Constitution. Right. So, is it possible? Could also for people that really like voter ID be kind of a turnout mechanism for Republicans that want to get this passed, or do you think that this is Needs to be done for practical reasons.
1: I think for a practical reason, we've we brought it up several years now, and like you said, it's two parts. The part, first part is a constitutional change. The second part is a statutory change. And even if we pass a statutory a statutory change this year, it won't be in effect until the following cycle. But um, I don't. Th- it's not a. I don't think it's a ploy for turnout. I think it's a ploy to actually get it done. Our base is wanted this for a long long time we all talk about it, and I think it's time we do it
0: And to be fair, there are probably going to be other things that are going to be bigger turnout mechanisms like you know the presidential race, right. governor's race, the you know recorder of deeds race in St. Louis. <laughs> I don't think there is a recorder of deeds in Jackson County so I, I that's a running joke they have. We'll see how that ends up but I'm sure it will face a interesting reception in the Senate from the Democrats but um, one of the things that passed this uh, I think today actually, was what is commonly known as paycheck protection it's something again that's been kind of a priority for many republicans that is kind of the moniker but kind of explain what it does before we get into any more things it
1: just allows public employee uh, public employees that belong to a union to have an annual uh, document that they say yes i want my dues collected for my paycheck and that's really what it's about
0: yeah and i think that This, again, has kind of split between Republican and Democrats, but there have been some Republicans who have been opposed who are more labor-friendly. They say that, when I say they, opponents say this is kind of a gratuitous slap at organized labor. Like, Why do you think it's necessary, and how would you kind of respond to that contention?
1: I think it's very necessary. We had uh, members, uh, Representative Dallas Johnson, who's a firefighter, he talks about, we've carved them out, but he talks about how important it was because he was a pro-life, uh, pro second amendment, uh, firefighter and his dues were being used to support people like Claire McCaskill and people that he did not align with and how, how much he hated his money being paid to help people like that get elected. And I think that's a valid argument. They compare it to, to corporate shareholders and things like that. You don't have to own a stock. And they'll say, "Well, you don't have to work someplace." Well, that's that's a little more important how you earn your living, and what you do, and so giving them the freedom not to not to have that anymore. I don't. It's not a burden. We made it so it can be electronic or paper. It's not a burden for people to sign something once a year, saying yes, you
0: can do this. Yeah, I'm not a huge expert in union uh, regulations, but isn't it already possible to opt out of your dues going to political contributions? at this point
1: there is a way to do that when i was this has been a while back i was in cwa up until 1985 with the the southwestern bell and i used to always fight every year because i was republican and it used to burn me up and they used to give me a check once a year just to shut me up but there is a process now that's smoother <laughs> than that to to get your dues not withheld. no
0: because i can understand that because there are a, a lot of republicans who are in labor unions who are there are, are probably very conservative socially mm-hmm. and they probably don't want it going want their money going to Democrats who are more liberal than them right um, but again from what I've heard and I'm not hundred percent sure of this there is a process for them to be detached from people t-
1: testified or, or, or a comment on that today there is but it's hard to get those forums. a lot of the times the labor unions are not easily swayed to, to provide those this makes it so it's a one year every year and we're not saying what month it's just up to the union to to whatever the cycle is the teachers will be probably when they sign contracts for the year uh, for other people, it's up to them to decide how they do that and when they do that. But this will allow members to actually have a moment in time when they can do that.
0: Why just public unions and not all unions?
1: Um, I just Right now, that seems to be the—for one thing, it's a political reality. We have a Democratic governor. We need 109 votes. You saw Right to Work last year where that went and how that went. Uh, We're just aware of that, and we're trying to do what's possible.
0: And speaking of right to work, Mm -hmm. that was an issue. That was a big issue last year. But there is an assumption that it's not going to come back this year until the governor's race is decided because – in many respects, if any of the Republicans are elected, you don't need 109 votes that's and you right. don't need 23 votes. You just basically need a simple majority right. and right to work is the law of the right. land. So is that kind of your thinking right now that you're going to wait until 2017?
1: I think that's a fair thought. I think the, the we have a really big caucus right now, and I'm thankful for that. But a really big caucus, you have a lot of marginal seats. And I'm very sympathetic to our members that are in marginal seats we are hired to re- represent the people we have in our district. And so that issue is very, very difficult for many people in, in marginal seats. And it caused a lot of bruising last year at our caucus. And I think I think waiting until this next election cycle uh, shakes out would be a good idea.
0: And I think it's already causing some recriminations even now. I think that there are some outside groups which are attacking each other. And I'm sure, has that caused any contention in the caucus at all?
1: it's it's yes it's it's causing some some hurt feelings the the sometimes it's not helpful we're we're right to work I understand outside groups are disappointed in us a lot of people think you got a super majority you can do these things we can do a lot of things we have done a lot of things that's one of the things that's really difficult with the with the districts we have and I'm I would just encourage them to the money they're spending if they help us get a governor we could get all this stuff done
0: that's kind of my thought too I'm not trying to criticize their strategy here they can do whatever they want and maybe they feel like this is necessary because if there's a democratic governor they want more conservative republicans but it does seem like you get a republican governor it's pretty much Game over. Yes, and right to work as laws land. We
1: would have many of these things done pretty quickly if we had a uh, Republican governor.
0: So I just want to turn for a few minutes to, I guess, politics a little bit. Um, I guess you'll be running for re-election. You're not going to be running for president or governor or any of those other places.
1: If if uh, drafted, I will not serve.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're. I think we're, you're emulating Sherman there. <laughs> what do you kind of think though of the state of the the Republican? party as far as the statewide Naturally? ticket. No, oh, no, statewide. statewide. Because right now there are four Republicans running for governor. There there are primaries for lieutenant governor, Secretary of State, not Treasurer but Attorney General. Um, is that gonna be good for the party? Do you think it's gonna be kind of hurtful because it could get contentious? What do you think that, that leaves the party?
1: I, I hope it's I I hope we get through the primaries without too much damage. It's always it's always potentially damaging to have a primaries. Um, with multi-person primaries it's less it's less easy to get that negative because it's not against one-on-one but we have been in a cycle the last few years of doing that it's a cycle the democrats used to have that they fought in primary statewide so much uh it's something we're we're struggling with now uh i i wish i could make it otherwise but I don't know how you, you do don't that. have
0: a magic primary one, no, so to don't. speak. We but don't. You, but I have heard that contention before. We had John Hancock on our show last year, and he said if there's a four-person gubernatorial primary, it's actually sometimes less That's nasty right. than is. a two-person mm-hmm. one, though we are seeing some back and forth between Greitens and Bruner, but we're not seeing, like, all four candidates, like, right. explode against each other. Though, you know, in the three-way primary for Senate a couple years ago, that did get contentious but it did. Um, we'll kind of have to see how that goes. Um, are you I mean are you going to be involved in the house races and, and, and then the political effort as well?
1: the house races i will be not i mean once we get through the primaries and and that's what i mean yes for november i'll be very involved i Uh, only
0: ask because traditionally the house majority leader has kind of been in in charge of the hrcc HRCC. and that's
1: still true uh i've got a, a responsibility to raise a lot of money for hrcc we have got a lot of districts to uh to defend uh, again with with the size of our majority there's a lot of marginal districts that we have to spend a lot of resources in and I, and I plan on being fully engaged with that
0: and my guess is since you are not trying to be speaker you're raising the money and giving it to everybody essentially I, um,
1: I, I plan on that it's um, it's kind of a neat spot to be in not looking at something else and um, I plan on doing
0: that and, and helping as many people as I can do you have any desire to run for Will Krause's seat when that opens up
1: It's something that I'm looking at, but it's still, uh, you know, a a, a long time away. Two years away, more than two years. Or it could be
0: next year, potentially. Well, it could be. It could be.
1: But I'm also 63, so you know, I hate to make predictions two years out. That's
0: true. That's true. I gotta always ask what you're gonna do next in the questions. But we appreciate you having on the show, and by we, I mean me, because there are not more than one person here. For all of our stories, STLPublicRadio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And are you on Twitter as well? I am. And how, wh- where can we find you on Twitter? I
1: just uh, Mike Serpo under my name.
0: I, I think I follow you on Twitter, and you can be very entertaining at times. So I highly recommend people follow you on Twitter.
1: I try to think twice before I tweet.
0: I think that is a wise option for any politician. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.
1: This is a view on a motorcycle drive by. The cigarette ash flies in your eyes, and you don't mind smile
0: and say the world it doesn't fit with you I don't